mindfulness mode. The truly greatest thing in life is becoming more in touch with yourself. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness right here on Mindfulness Mode. Hey, Mindful Tribe, so good to have you with us. And today, I'm here with an author. He's a public speaker, a philanthropist, and he's an endurance athlete whose mission is to form more meaningful human connections through storytelling. And his first book was called Winning in the Middle of the Pack, and that book discussed how to get more out of ourselves than ever imagined. And his newest book, that's the one I've been reading, is called Cycle of Lives. It shares the interconnected stories of people overcoming trauma, and it delves deeply into their emotional journeys with cancer. So I'm here today with David Richmond, and I do love your book, David. David, are you in mindfulness mode today? I most definitely am. I get a chance to talk to you, Bruce. Why wouldn't I be mindful? Well, and I'm honored to have a chance to talk to you as well. So, David, what does mindfulness mean to you? Well, uh, mindfulness is, uh, of course, it's just right, be, being aware, right? Kind of getting the noise that's around us to settle down and not uh, not uh, give our attention to the things that are outside of us, but kind of be more present, be be immersed in the moment and um, be aware of what's going on inside of you and how you're relating to the outside world and how the outside world is relating to you uh, rather than just being a reactionary force. Um, it's, it's, it's being mindful about the way in which you're reacting to um, your true, you know, your true self being heart centered and the way you're reacting to the outside forces. That's, that's what I think mindfulness is. Yeah. And I agree with you on that, David. Yeah. It is about being heart centered. It's about being present. So David, let's go back. Let's go back to some of the darker times in your life and some of the struggles. Could you share some of that with us? Yeah. So I was in a bad spot in my life, right? I, I, I had um, kind of done the exact opposite of mindfulness my whole life where I, 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 I had uh, lived my life based on what I thought others needed from me or what I thought would make me a better person in other people's eyes or would get me a better job or a better relationship or make me, you know, give me more value based on the way that I felt I would be perceived by others. And, and I was in a bad relationship. Um, it was just a very bad time in my life. And I just realized it's just through a couple of, of, of unfortunate events that I realized that I had been doing this my whole life. And I, you know, I guess the, the greatest thing about life is you only know what you know, when you know it. And at that moment, when, when this kind of like conjunction of a bunch of different bad events came about, I realized I knew that that point was the first time I knew that I had to start looking inside as to what would make me happy and not what I need to do to make others happy. And, and, uh, that, that, that's, was the start of the journey. So tell us what started the shift. Tell us that, that day or that moment where things really started to change for you. Well, you're going to appreciate this because I didn't do this on purpose as a, a part of an exercise, but you, some of your experts that you talk to would agree that this is a good thing to do. I literally, Bruce, sat in front or stood in front of the mirror and I looked at myself. It was quiet, calm night. 
And I just said, you know, stop, stop being whatever you think you should be. And what do you want to be? Like, what, what do you want to be? What, what, what is it? Like, who are you? What do you want to be? And just, I tried to uh, vocalize it so that I could tell myself that what was inside of me was important. So for me, I wanted to be a non-smoker. I wanted to be healthy. I wanted to be active. I, I wanted to start relying on what would make me happy because and then I said I'll be happier for other people and the important things in my life so so that's what I did so yeah I did it all at the same time I just said I'm going to start being me and 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 what is that and I just vocalize it I want to be a non-smoker I want to be healthy I want to be active that's where I started and now you've run all kinds of marathons David what was it like running that first marathon (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh I couldn't walk for like three days. I literally, Bruce, ran like two minutes. Couldn't, couldn't, because I had smoking, I was smoking a pack a day at least for like 20 years. Yeah. And, um, and I was probably at that point, maybe 40-ish to 50-ish pounds overweight, which is a lot of overweight to carry on an unathletic frame and with a smoker's lungs. And so when I ran that first two minutes, I call it running. I don't know what you call it, stumbling. Um, and, and then I couldn't walk for a couple of days. My, my legs were so sore. I'm like, what the hell am I doing to myself? What did I do to myself? So it was ridiculous. But I also knew um, from some of the bad things in my life that I could dig myself a big hole and climb out, figure a way to climb out of it. And I said, well, why not dig yourself a big hole? Why don't you, instead of just trying to go for a run, why don't you go for a long run? And then a longer run and a longer run. And heck, Bruce, after like four weeks after stop smoking, I ran a 5K. Then I ran a 10K the following week. And by uh, by uh, inside of a year, I finished my first Ironman triathlon. Wow, that's amazing. That must have been yeah. an incredible feeling. Describe that for us. It, it was amazing because, um, again, if, if you asked me, Bruce, at that time in my life or any time before that life, hey, uh, if you make it from point A to point B, I will give you this. Or I would assume that I might be entitled to get this from you if I go from point A to point B. But when you do something like that's that's so uh, relying on yourself um, to get from point A, which is I want to be healthy, I want to be a non-smoker, I want to be athletic, to crossing the finish line at a you know twelve hour endurance athletic event, um, it was very very empowering. It was calming. Um, it 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 was it was refreshing. It 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 just allowed me to realize that this is who I was and what I was getting out of it was only what mattered to me and what was inside of me. I wasn't getting anything from it from anybody else, and my motivation was not to impress anybody, to, to win anything, to have anybody say good job. None of that. I just wanted to prove that I could do something. And that's a very empowering thing. Yeah, it sure is. Well, this book you've put together, David, Cycle of Lives, it's so powerful. Where did you get the idea to gather people's stories together about cancer? So during that time that I spoke about where I had a couple of just really traumatic events going on. One of those traumatic events was my sister, June, had told me that she was diagnosed with what would be terminal brain cancer. I married young kids, vibrant career, 
a wonderful group of friends, just a, just a wonderful lady with a lot of wonderful things going on. And, um, and it was really tough, right? It was really tough for her to know that, 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 that was it, that, that her life was going to end. And as you can imagine, um, you know, the trauma that comes with any type of uh, horrible event, especially around death. But it, I, I think there's another level of trauma boost when, when it's impending, when you know it's coming, when you have to wrap your brain around it and um, interact with people and determine how am I going to finish out my legacy? How am I going to communicate to my loved ones? These are, these are things that are so hard to deal with because the human brain is just not wired to understand our, our, our mortality. And so uh, in doing events for her and uh, both when she was alive and after she, she passed, I came across this recurring theme, Bruce, and it was that people don't know how to deal with the emotional side of this trauma of cancer and all the other traumas, uh, suicide, abandonment, abuse, you name it. Uh, the emotional side of it is what people have a really difficult time with. And so uh, I thought to myself, wouldn't it be great if we could all be better equipped with how to deal with that emotional side so that we can better understand what we're going through or more importantly, uh, what we can, we can better understand what those around us might be going through. How, how do you talk to people? What do you say to somebody who comes to you and says, you know, my, my son was diagnosed with cancer. What do you say when somebody, a, a, a worker, a coworker commits suicide? I mean, there's, how do you deal with these traumatic things on the emotional level? And I just thought it was a fascinating thing to explore because it was a recurring theme with every single person I ran into. Well, it is fascinating. And one of the things that I noticed, David, about your book is as I read those stories of those individual people, those 15 stories, I started to become so engrossed in their stories that I almost forgot that you were the author of the overall book. It's the kind of book yeah. that you can just pick up and read one of the stories and then put it down and later read one of the other ones. You know, I, I read that story about Bobby and I was like wowed by that. And then and then that story about Joshua, an incredible story. It really was. Unbelievable, right? Unbelievable. Yeah. And if I could tell you, Bruce, just why the, the book meant so much to me and, and why I think it, it would be a value to people is like with Joshua, um, and, and I won't give it the whole thing away, but he had some unbelievably traumatic things happen to him as, as a child, like things we can't even wrap our brains around. But when I first talked to him, he had only talked about the the concept of the, the dealing with potentially his own mortality as he had uh, just a horrible cancer diagnosis and just a just a just a oppressive situation to get through it. And then kind of to that story was that his girlfriend kind of abandoned him through this this process. And 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 there was a little disconnect, Bruce, when we were talking and, and I didn't know him before I before we started talking. And I just said to him, Joshua, there's more, there's more, there's more. And he brought me back to these childhood things that had happened to him that he hadn't talked to anybody about. And then I could frame it and understand like when we know somebody's going through something and they don't want our help, maybe it's not pride. Maybe it's not their guilt. Maybe they're just dealing with the fact that they were abandoned before. And if they ask for help, that you might not be there for them. And there's so many 
potential things that people could learn. And I thought by getting into these people's heads and by bringing the real traumas and the real experiences that would allow us to identify with who they are, that we might be able to go in the future and apply that to situations that we come across. And uh, Josh is a wonderful, wonderful uh, person. He's, a, he's, a, he's turned into a great friend and his story is just unbelievable. Yeah, it is unbelievable. It really is. David, have you always been a writer? <laughs> yes. I haven't always been an author, right? Different between uh, writing and, and, and having a book come out. But I, I have always been a writer. Um, I love writing. I, I, I definitely have uh, let life get in the way of, of too many books that should be out by now. But I do have a few books published, um, which which is is you know is when you go from being a writer to an author. But I love to write, and the thing that I like the most, and it, it you know it, it it's it's another aspect of mindfulness is is I like being in somebody else's head, and I like to try to find a calm place. Like I don't write from the outside. So that I can I can tell you what to see as the reader. I try to write from the inside so that you determine what you're seeing. And um, uh, so I, I I find writing to be uh, just just the biggest joy in life. Well, you make it so present. Like wow, when I read these stories, it just feels like I'm right there at that place in time. And then you'll say, and 20 years later, and I'm like, wow, how do you do that? <laughs> Like you just bring the reader right into the current place and time that you're writing about. And to me, that's mindfulness. Yeah, well, uh, it absolutely is. And Bruce, I'll tell you what, what, you know what the scariest thing is, right? When you write, when you're a writer and you know this, when you're a writer, the scariest thing is your insecurities come out when you give somebody that copy to read and you're thinking, oh my God, are they going to tell me it's terrible? Am I, am I going to sound like a moron? You know, like, what are you going to write? Uh, you're so insecure. But let me tell you that you take that another level. When I'm, when I send these stories out to the participants and they had many of them, I become very personal with, obviously you could tell by the, by the detail in the stories. And then I say to them, Hey, I wrote you as you, in your life and these traumatic things I wrote in this, these 25 pages, uh, I, ho I hope it's you. That was some scary stuff. It's, it's funny, Bruce, because I would send it, they got the email and I would send it to somebody and then they didn't answer my email in seven minutes. I would go to my wife and I'd go, oh, they hate the story. They hate me. Oh, it's terrible. And she's like, come on, you just press send on the email. Give them a minute to get back to you. But um Thankfully, I, I captured the, uh, people the way that they uh, visioned their own lives and their own traumas and how they how they had gone through what they had gone through. And they're very, very much with the messages and the stories. So tell us, David, were there some instances where they got back to you and they said, no, this doesn't sound like me. You're just going to have to revamp it. It's not quite right. Uh, yes. Uh, all the way from uh, one of the toughest ones for me was, I don't know if you've read the story, Jen, of the nurse. And yes, I did read was, that one. Where she took care of her dad as he was dying um, when she was a little girl. And uh, that was one that was for me very hard to send because she she's such a happy, optimistic, sweet, wonderful person. And she had gone through such difficult times. And I didn't want to taint 
her recollection of those events to me with bad writing or capturing her in a wrong stamp, you know, wrong viewpoint. And when she, when she, when she talked to me and it took her like weeks to get back to me, I was, I couldn't sleep for weeks thinking she hated it. She said, don't change a word. It's perfect. And I went, Oh my God, (laughs) wow, that was so great. And then I had other people who said, great story. I don't know who you wrote about, but uh, (laughs) I'm like, wait a second. That's all. That's everything we talked about. So, oh, really? No, this didn't happen like that. And I said, yeah, well, I had to take a little bit of license every once in a while. Do you know, how do you capture Bruce, uh, you know, in 20 pages? You can't do that. You have to, you have to use a little license. So some people said, uh, yeah, you got to change some stuff. Other people said it's perfect the way it is. So David, do you have plans for another book right now? Are you working on something else? I, I am. I'm, I'm working on several books. I have. I have. I'm mostly in the fiction area. Um, I have a book based on uh, Greek mythology. I have another one that's based on um, a street artist, a young street artist. That's more of a more of a thriller. Um, and I and I plan to continue to write. Um, you know. Um, again, you know what you know, and you know it. And I know. I know that that. Um, that I, I like telling stories. I've always been a storyteller, but um, I haven't been on purpose and mindful about getting those stories out. I've had them inside my head forever, and that's not where they belong. No, that's for sure. Well, there are lots of books out there about how to get it out there. Stephen King has a book. Have you read that one? Uh, uh, on writing, yeah. Stephen King on writing, great book. I, I, in fact, when I was on my bike ride, because you know, part of the the book is the narrative of me connecting. Right, I like to connect people. Connect. So the theme of connecting people, I figured I could connect them by biking, a solo bike bicycle ride across and zigzagging up and down the country to meet them for the first time. Um, so I could connect the stories. Um, uh, uh, I listened to that book probably five times on audio, on audio, you know, the audio version after having read it a bunch of times. I'm very familiar with that book. Yeah, yeah. So let me get this straight. You rode your bike from California to Florida and then yeah. to New York. Is that right? That is correct. Yes. And you visited these people in person. So up to that point, you had probably visited them online or on the phone or something. You got to know them and then you met them personally and got to know them even better. Isn't that how this all went? It is. And I didn't get to visit all of them because they're a little more scattered than that. But I I got to visit most of them. And I'd say out of the 15 that made the final cut, I probably had met four or five um, and so I really had about 10 to meet uh-huh. and, um, and I met most of them on the bike ride. So yeah, it was, it was, it was a really a neat thing to have. And I didn't do any uh, video, uh, interviews with people. I, I only talked on the phone, um, took notes, talked on the phone. Um, so to meet them for the first time in person was, was, uh, unbelievable. Yeah. It must've been unbelievable. Well, how long was this tour? So I didn't have a lot of time, so I had to be very uh, mindful have, mm-hmm. <laughs> of, of my schedule. Each day I had to get from point A to point B. And point A to point B was, if you could do the math, I ended up doing 4,700 miles in 45 days. So that's more than 100 miles per day. And I only took four days off. So I actually did 4,700 miles in 41 days of biking. That's you know just under 120 miles per day. Uh, solo with a heavy touring bike. I did have some, my wife as a support crew, some friends every once in a while 
as a support crew, but I was putting in eight, 10, 12, 14, 16, 18 hour days biking from point A to point B. Um, so it was, it was quick. It, w- it was quick and it was very, very hard. Yeah. It sounds like it would be hard. It sounds yeah. really hard. And do you still bike now today, David? Not every day, but I, but I try to stay in shape. I do bike. I, I, I thought to myself, the one thing that was a bummer about biking so, so far in such a short period of time was that I didn't get to linger much. So, um, it would be nice if you're going to do something crazy, like bike 5,000 miles, it'd be nice if you could take your time doing it to enjoy the sights. Yeah. But, um, um, and it would be less traumatic because I had to be on the, on the interstates. Wow. Because that's the quickest way. And, and that's, that's scary. Not only is it scary and dangerous, but it's loud as heck. And it's, it's very intimidating. I still have a little PTSD a couple of years later. I'm out on my bike. I bike maybe three, four times a week, but I'm out on my bike and, and a truck, you know, comes from me from behind. I still get nervous, you know? So it, it's uh, I would have liked to have taken my time, but things are what they are. Yeah. I wanted to talk to you about that. You know, the fears, the dangers, that's one of the things that a lot of people think of when they think of cycling. So did you experience any close calls, David? <laughs> All the time. Oh my gosh. It is the most stressful thing ever. But look, I mean, everything is stressful and everything is dangerous, right? Sitting at home in your house is dangerous in, in one form or another. So I, I, I think that there's a difference between something being riskless and something being careless or reckless, right? Um, riding your bike uh, on the street is not riskless, but if you do it, if you don't do it in a reckless manner, it, 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 there's a minimal amount of risk, right? But yeah, I did have some close encounters. I, 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 I was on some roads where the shoulder disappeared and there was traffic. I had to wear lights at night and you never know who might be paying attention to their phone or had ears and, you know, or whatever. Um, so it was, I had to really be aware. I had, I couldn't let my mind um, completely forget that I was on the bike because it's, it's dangerous out there, especially if you're on the interstates. And I was on the interstates for probably, 4,000 of the 4,700 miles, I was on the, uh, I was on interstate highways with, you know, endless streams of 70 mile an hour, 80 mile an hour cars going by. What was the most scary state that you were in? (laughs) (laughs) Ah, yikes. Um, The scariest state was probably New Jersey. Yeah, it was scary. There are a lot of rough roads. Parts of Texas were pretty scary too. Houston was brutal. The roads in Houston are brutal. Um, but Texas is very beautiful. I think scary-wise though, yeah, when I got along the East Coast, it was funny. I I, I, I don't mean to pick on Philadelphia, but but I, I was going through South Philly and I called my wife and I'm like, every car runs stop signs here and everybody zooms from place to place. Nobody, nobody is uh, careful of, of, the, of the bikers. And I keep yelling at all these bikes or all these cars that are, that are almost hitting me. And she goes, you're in South Philadelphia. You don't need to be yelling at cars right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just survive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it, it was not very calm. Let's just say when I did have calm moments, Bruce, they were very, very welcome because that, that most of the most of the days were not calm. Yeah. Wow. Well, David, do you meditate? Uh, you know, um, I know that you believe meditation comes in different forms, right? I do. 
So the answer is yes, but, but I don't meditate um, in, in, in a traditional sense. For, for me, meditation comes through physical activity, which is one way that, that you mentioned. Yeah. And um, I find that when I'm on, it used to be, it used to take me a couple hours to get into a meditative state when I was biking or running. Now I can get in a meditative state in about 30 minutes or so of physical activity, not going to the gym, not going for a walk. Those are all great. But I'm talking about if I get on a bike and go for four or five hours, if I go on a run and run for two, three hours, I, I find that to be unbelievably calming, meditative, cathartic. I'm very, very present in my own head. Um, and it's, and it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful feeling. Yeah, I agree with that. And I want to ask you, when you run, are you super competitive with yourself? Are you always like timing yourself or do you just run and not even worry about it? I don't really worry about those things. And and the reason why is because it's, it's like with money, right? As rich as you'd ever want to be, there's always, always, always going to be somebody richer in the room. Yeah. Right. So, so why, what, what are you competing for? I, I think you could try to be the best that you can be. And as long as you're giving your best effort and as long as you're being the best that you can be, it doesn't matter. And so um, my best sometimes is fast and my best sometimes is slow, but I'm, I'm at least I'm going out there giving an effort. So I'm, I'm not driven by the self-competition. I'm not driven by by, by, by results. I, I, you know, I, it's fun sometimes to do that, but what I'm driven by is, um, knowing that I actually really enjoy people don't, some people don't understand it. I really enjoy biking and running and swimming and I enjoy the heat and I like going for hours at a time and I enjoy pushing myself and seeing where my boundaries are. That to me is a calm, wonderful, cathartic, meditative um, exercise for me. Well, besides writing and pushing yourself at sports, what else do you enjoy in life? I enjoy my wife. Um, I enjoy my kids. My kids are grown. Um, they're, they're master's programs. Um, uh, I enjoy doing mosaic tile work. I enjoy my friends. I love cooking. Um, I love, love, love music, listening to music. Um, I love being busy. Uh, there, there's very few things I don't enjoy doing. Yeah. Tell me more about this mosaic tile work. That sounds interesting. It's the same kind of thing, right? Um, uh, uh, when I, I find when I'm doing the mosaic tile work that I'm actually, it actually frees my brain up. It's like doing a puzzle. You know how like people, when they do a puzzle, they can think, or some people, uh, so, some people knit or some people do other things. And, and it's like that activity looks like it takes concentration, but it actually just, freeze all the noise out of your head and maybe doing a puzzle you're thinking about the puzzle but you're not thinking about the 20 other things that your brain normally tries to think about and so i feel that anything that you delve yourself into that's a singular focus uh, actually unclutters the brain and so i i like doing um artistic things like writing doing mosaics cooking um, I think running and biking is artistic in that way um, because focusing or not focusing on so many things allows you to really, really get some clarity on, on stuff. You have some pretty incredible reviews of your book. Tell me about one that really impressed you or maybe one of the first ones that came in that, that you were thrilled by. Uh, so um, 
the first review I think where I, I was really touched was I, I got a review from a critical care nurse uh-huh. and it was a very simple a message. She sent me an email and she said, I've been a critical care nurse for 15 years. I just finished your book. It's going to make me a better nurse. Wow. And I went, Oh my God, that's great. And, and I responded to her. I said, that's incredible. Why is that? And she said, because I think I, I thought I knew what might be going through my patient's head, what things they might've gone in life, but I realized I had no idea. And so it's going to make me um, relate to them better. It's going to make me be more patient with them. And I thought to myself, how wonderful is that, that, that that happened. Um, But any good review feels good, but I think the reviews that, that make me, um, uh, really sit back is when somebody says it affected them. It, it made them have a conversation they wouldn't have had. It reiterated their faith or whatever story they identify. And trust me, Bruce, one of the funnest thing, things for me, because it's 15 different stories and 15 different people, is to ask people what their favorite story is. And it's shocking, right? The range. Yeah. And so it's wonderful to know that people can get different things from, from the book. But the reviews that come come through where where somebody says it it reaffirmed a belief or it changed a belief that's that's powerful well my wife is a critical care nurse so i look forward to hearing some of her feedback in response to reading some of these stories she hasn't read it yet i want to ask you a question about bullying david because in my show i always ask a question about this topic do you have a story about bullying where mindfulness would have made a difference Ah, yeah. So knowing that was coming, I thought to myself, Bruce, do I, um, do I tell you a story or do I open up the book? And I, it was a hard, hard decision, but I just said, okay, I'll open up the book. Yeah. So, uh, I had a bit of a rough childhood who doesn't, right. Um, one of the things that I went through and how I dealt with some of my issues was actually was to be a bully. Okay. And, uh, yeah, sure. I was bullied of course. Right. Um, and I remember vividly some instances that, that still scar me to these days, but I also know that I did the same to other people. And, um, I, I can be very specific about it, but I don't need to, but I, I know when I've learned so much about myself, um, you know, for many, many, many years, um, I, it's not like I just recently came to terms with it. Um, but in, in, and so I can say that, yes, I, I, I can understand how being more mindful while being bullied is important, but I think it, it, it's just, um, it's, it, it hit me more Bruce that to be, how would, if I was more mindful at the time, how that would have prevented me from being a bully. And I think that, if, if I could have understood, if somebody would have, would have said to me that you can deal with the difficult times that you're going through a different way, if I had a safe space with which to be myself or to have somebody give me some guidance on how to come to terms with issues that weren't perfect, then maybe I wouldn't have lashed out at others. And, um, and, and honestly, we see it all the time, right? Even as adults, bullying in the workplace 
um, uh, bullying amongst friends. And, you know, it's, it's a different level of bullying. Um, uh, but you can tell that most of those come from insecurity and most of it comes from people that don't know how to process and deal with their own issues. And maybe they're not safe to, maybe they haven't been given the tools to, but I think when you can come to terms with who you are and what's important to you and how you can have an effect on other people that is lasting, um, I think most of us would want to have a lasting effect that's positive, right? Yeah, I think so. David, have you ever reconnected and made amends with any of those people? Um, I haven't. Uh, I have to really think hard about that. Um, I don't think that I have only because I was pretty young yeah. and I'm not in contact with any of those people. I think it'd be very difficult to find them even. Um, so I, I'd have to say no. Um, I, I do I do know that being aware of those issues from probably late teens on is realizing how, you know, when I was a grade schooler and I was, a, I, I used to pick on people and start fights and, and be a bully. I think I, I learned from it very early on not to be that. Yeah. And so uh, if I didn't make amends with them um, and I probably haven't thought this through, but I'm glad you asked me the question. I know for certain that because I became aware of it and dealt with it and didn't hide behind it, I know for decades and decades now, it's it's made me be more aware of the impact I might have on other people, especially like if you're if you're a boss or a manager, or you have employees or with your kids or whatever. And so uh, I have gone out of my way in my life to create a safe place for people, um, so that um, so that they can. Um, work through issues uh, that they have, work through issues that, that happen in their lives, work through issues that they're having with you. And, and I, I'm very much the antithesis of a bully for many, many years. Right. And it says in your bio, you're a philanthropist. Tell us about that. Well, so, um, you know, I, I, I don't know why I continue to stop making this a focus because it's, I think it's kind of important. It's probably because books don't make a whole lot of money, but a hundred percent of the proceeds from the book are going to the cancer focused and other charities, all nonprofits that the uh, book participants uh, each picked. So each one had uh, an organization that was important to them. And my wife and I decided that a hundred percent of anything that comes to us through Amazon or direct sales or audible or whatever, a hundred percent of that's going to be given to the, uh, book participants, um, uh, the charities that they chose. Um, I've, I've done a, a tons of fundraisers. Um, I sit on, I serve on the board of uh, uh, Stupid Cancer, a big um, uh, 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 um, organization that caters to the AYA cancer community, um, and and numerous other things. And I find it's it's tried if you if you know, but. I, I do find that doing for others is way, way more rewarding than doing for yourself. Um, I, you know, I'm no saint. Um, I spend plenty of time focused on me, but I like, um, I like focusing on other people and doing good for other people because it really is rewarding. Oh yeah. And it's very impressive that the proceeds from the book are going to all of those charities. That's fantastic. Wow. The people whose stories are in that book, they must be so grateful. Yeah, I, I think so. You know, uh, I know for sure, Bruce, that if, if nobody read the book and plenty of people have and hopefully plenty of people will. Um, but I, but I, when, when I was done with the book and, and, and um, uh, apologies if this sounds um, 
self-serving, but the, I know the stories were good. I, 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 I know they were, they weren't my stories. They were their stories. I just happened to write them. I know the stories were good. And if only I got out of it, the, the maybe half the people were profoundly affected in a positive way. Uh, some, it was like a good exercise and there they forgot about it and moved on. But with some of them, it was a profound experience in their life. And if, if it only affected them in that very positive way, it was enough. And the fact that it's more than that is, is, is that, but uh, honestly, there's, it's, it's that part of it's been, been so rewarding because um, they allowed me to go on this journey of, of transformation of, of, of awareness of metamorphosis, you know, and, and, and I was, I was along for that ride. That's very rewarding. David, as we move forward in the interview, I want to ask you five quick answered questions. So just 30 second answers are perfect. Here's the first one. Who is one person who has been a powerful mindfulness influence in your life? Probably the most mindfulness person in my I would say it's my sister June even though she passed away a long time ago I think the thought of her and the thought that she's uh, looking at me and the thought of you know uh, determine what's important to you I, I think she's probably the thought of her um, has probably given me the most um, the most comfort and direction to worry about myself I'm not surprised to hear you say that because you shared that in your book and it really seemed real. Number two, tell us about emotions. Tell us how your emotions have kind of helped you stay in touch with who you are and how you relate to your emotions now as a result of mindfulness. Yeah, you know, um, tough to answer in 30 seconds, but I'm going to do my best. Um, you know, the only thing that connects us all really is our emotions and um, we, you know, we, we, we can, we can all point to so many things in our life and so many people in our life where you could say, just be real, right? Just be real. Like, just tell me what you're feeling. Yeah. You say one thing, you're, you're acting a different way. I think that the connection to our emotion and, and that connection to other people through our emotions is, is really the most powerful thing we have between us as humans. And so for me, I think being mindful of my emotions and being comfortable with them and, and allowing myself to have some uh, compassion, self, self-compassion for when I'm not the best emotional person I can be, but I'll continue to work to try to be better at that. Those are, the, the, to me, that, that's, that's everything in life. It just is everything. If you could recommend a book related to mindfulness, what would that be? Um, I say the power now is, is, is good because I, I think it's, 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 it's also not just a book that could affect you, but it's a book that so many people have read that you can talk to others about it. A lot of times, uh, when you, um, read a book that others, uh, haven't read and you can't talk about it, uh, I think that maybe limits the effect. I like, I like having books that other people have read. Like when I do a book club, I love, I love it because everybody's read the book and you can talk about it and everybody can give their thing. So I'd say the power now only because if it does touch you, you're going to be able to find plenty of people that have read it and can help you through some of those issues. Well, that's definitely true with that book. That's for sure. Tell us how breathing is part of your mindfulness. <laughs> Ah, try running. That'll do it. It's all about, it's all about controlling your breath um, and swimming too. 
Um, I think uh, breath work is, is important. And it's an area, Bruce, that I'm exploring right now in my life is breath work and um, being very um, uh, direct and, and, and deliberate about, about your breathing. So I'd say it's way more important than I even know, cause I'm just getting into breath work and, um, but, but I've always been mindful of it in that, um, I try to keep my, I try to be aware of my heart rate, which is directly related to your breathing. And, um, so I, th I think having a focus on your, uh, physiological state, which obviously is really determined by your 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 breath, um, uh, is 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 a great starting place. So I'm very aware of it, and I'm barely aware of it. <laughs> David, can you share an app which can help with mindfulness? I should have come prepared for that. Um, I would say, um, and sorry, I don't have a direct answer on that, Bruce. But I would say that. Um, I, I use, like, I have a Garmin connect watch, right? I have a, Gar a Garmin watch and, um, there doesn't a day go by where I don't look at how much sleep I have, what my stress level is, what my, um, resting heart rate is. Um, uh, I, I think that that's important because it lets you know when you're stressed out, it lets you know, am I getting my sleep? Um, what's my resting heart rate? What's my stress rate? So I would say any type of app that allows you to at least start to understand your physiology um, and how those things will affect your moods, um, your biorhythms, your, your ability to stay healthy, uh, your ability to be present and calm. All of those things will start with at least looking at a scoreboard. And I, and I think that's, that, that any app that allows you to do that is, is, is useful. I use Garmin Connect. For that, but I, I don't actually have an app for any you know meditative work or breath work or anything like that. Well, you told a lot of stories about people experiencing trauma in your book, and when I got to the end of the book, there was one thing I really thought a lot about, and that was as much as you love June and you shared a lot about your sister June in the book. Well, by the time we got to the end of the book, we found out from you that. You know, there's such a disconnect that that the family is not willing to connect with you. That really hit me because a lot of people have problems with disconnect within families. And you were so vulnerable to be, you know, open and, and share about this situation with you. So has that changed at all or is it still exactly the same as you described it? Mm-hmm. It is the the biggest scratch on my head, the biggest itch that I need to scratch. Rather, it's I don't understand it. It's it's something that I, I don't think I ever will understand it. I, I yeah. I wish I could say that. Um, I wish I could say it would come out rosy on that side, but it's not. You know, I'm um, sometimes right. We 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 see this, and it's a hard thing to to realize. But sometimes bad things happen to good people, right? Some sometimes situations don't make any sense and they're and that's the way they are and um i think it's important to try to change things and to hope that you can better some situations and other times it's better to learn how to come to grips with the fact that it is the way it is and um, i think that we can become jaded and we become cynical and we can become close-minded if we let the things define us that we can't change and I, although I would love for it to be different, Bruce, I mean, 
it's a it's you you saw from the book that it's something that still was was in my head it still is a little bit in my head but i'm i'm getting more and more okay with the fact that i just i'm not going to be able to change it i'm not going to be cynical about it i'm not going to be closed-minded about my life it's just fortunate but you know what i i just i don't have that connection i don't i don't have it they don't want it um i've reached out to them a ton um you know it's just it's just not there and it never and it never will be and it's it's a shame but i i can't waste my time um beating myself up over something i can't change was it a hard decision for you to make as to whether you would include that part of the story in the book because you obviously could have left that out yeah not only was it a hard decision bruce but i failed at it miserably the first time. And my editor said, you know what, your story stinks because you didn't tell anybody the truth about what you're going through. Because my story, not not the 15 story. So the narrative in between this, it contains a little bit of my story. And I said, what are you talking about? And she said, yeah, you know what, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't give us closure. You didn't give us a reason as to why you feel these things. She goes, if you're going to say that you haven't talked to your mom in your adult life because your mom doesn't care to talk to you, you better give us a good reason why. Because otherwise we're not going to believe him. We think you're a bad guy. You're not a bad guy. Your mom just doesn't want to want to have anything to do with a kid, and she never has. So you got to make us believe that. Why? And how have you come to terms with it? Don't don't fake it. If you're going to bring it up, don't fake it. And so I, it was hard. Yeah, it was hard, but it was important. And yeah, it was important. And I think that was a really powerful part of the book. It wasn't part of the stories. It was about you. That was really important to me as a reader. It helped me resonate with you and feel connected to who you are as a person. Uh, Thanks, Bruce. Let me tell you a super quick story. So um, when I talk to people, right, um, I I brought up two things with them. I said, hey, number one is I'm going to have to ask you anything, right? Let, Let me do that. Let me ask you anything, right? And they were like, okay. And then the second thing is, is I said, I'm, I need to tell your story and get to the important parts. And every single one of them said to me, Bruce, they said, yeah, my story's not that interesting. And once I heard their story, I was like, are you kidding me? Your story is unbelievably interesting. So when I started talking about my narrative, right, um, my editor, my certainly my wife, Erin, she said, yeah, you're, 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 you didn't go deep enough into your story. And I go, yeah, my story's not that interesting. And she's like, what are you talking about? You're saying the same thing that the people said. And I, I learned that, you know what, our stories aren't that interesting to us because it's just, we're just living our life. And the things that we do aren't that important. And, and they're, that we don't look at them as spectacular. But if you, if, if you really get to the essence of what makes each of us unique and what drives each of us and the emotional issues that we've dealt with or need to deal with, the traumas that we've endured, um, the, the growth and the transformation that we've made, if, if you really take time to listen to that story with each and every person, which we don't have the ability to do, but if you could, every single person's story would just fascinate you. And so um, it's very sweet that you said that. And and I hoped that my story would not be uh, only interesting to me. So that's that's good. Yeah, well, I really resonated with it because of something that's going on in my own family. And I'm sure there are a lot of readers who would resonate with it as well. Yeah, probably right. It is what it is. And if we can come to terms with those things, Right. Well, why not focus on the positives? But you can't focus on the positives if all you're doing is thinking about the negatives in your head. 
Yeah, it's true. Cycleoflives.org, Mindful Tribe. Cycleoflives.org. Check it out. You really need to read this book. It's powerful. It's gripping. It's well-written. I really appreciated it, and I think you will too. It really pulled me in as a reader. It's meaty. It's not fluff. It's well-written. I think you should check it out. So, David, for anyone listening to this today who's just dabbling in mindfulness, just kind of checking it out, what advice would you give them so that they can move forward and feel more grounded? Um, I would say, Bruce, and thank you for those kind words, by the way, um, I would say that the, the truly greatest thing in life is becoming more in touch with yourself. And we oftentimes don't give the right amount of attention to ourselves. Um, and I'm not saying um, be selfish all the time or don't care about others, but I'm saying if we can look inside and realize what's important to us and and, and take care of ourselves first, um, that's such a wonderful, wonderful thing. And growth, great growth can come from that. And um, I know that I'm a better person, a better husband, a better father, because I'm more comfortable with who I am. And that takes time. And you, you have to be, you have to become familiar with yourself and you have to be heart centered and mindful of, of who you are and you become a better person. The, the, what you get back from being in tune with who you are is just so much more. And I'd say, although it's difficult to focus on ourselves, sometimes it's such an important thing. Yeah, it's definitely an important thing, David. Thanks again for being on the show today. Thank you, Bruce. And oh, by the way, tell your wife, thank you for being uh, such a, a great uh, caregiver to others as a nurse. And I'd love to hear what her thoughts are, if it makes her a better nurse or makes her hate her patients more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll let you know. Well, thanks again. Bye now. Bye-bye. Hey, Mindful Tribe. Thanks for listening to the episode. Are you as inspired by David Richmond as I am? I mean, Wow. Wow, he came to that that pivotal point in his life and he said, hey man, I am going to change. I am definitely going to change. And then did he ever change? Wow, wow. He was so determined to quit smoking and to become active and to be a runner and then a swimmer. Wow, I just am incredibly impressed. It's not an easy thing to do and... Uh, I love how he explained his steps along the way about how he did it. And I, like I said in the episode, I really enjoyed his book as well. But if you are having a challenge, if you see a little bit of yourself in this story, maybe hypnosis is something that can help you. Well, I say maybe, but I really don't think of it that way because I think hypnosis can help almost anyone and it can help you fast track your changes because it helps you deal with your subconscious mind and what issues are going on in in your subconscious mind right now that are beyond your control and so that's why having somebody help you and to use hypnosis can truly make a difference so whether it's me or someone else I highly recommend it and if you do want to connect with me 
and just talk about how hypnosis can possibly help you, send me an email, bruce at mindfulnessmode.com and put David Richmond in the subject line and I'll know you heard me on this episode. So take what we've learned today, and I've learned a lot from David, and reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.